the late 1800s, entertainment had caught on in America, with vaudeville taking the lead. Though now vaudeville is only seen as a pie-in-the-face hack comedy show, the live variety show had one intentional audience that you wouldn't expect. Vaudeville was aimed at the Christian audience. And although the show was inherently clean and saw Christian families flock to their performances, vaudeville had a dirty secret. Behind the scenes, it was a drug-infested, prostitute-ridden, intimidating environment with no spiritual focus at all. In other words, even though it was billed this way, vaudeville was far from Christian. This is an episode into the forgotten history of stand-up comedy and the misleading agenda people tried to take by using Christianity as a top billing for their audience, including the epic fall of the number one Christian comedian, which is a story that will definitely shock you. This is the Comedians Who Needed Jesus episode. It's time for a pop quiz. Which famous comedian was a priest before he took up comedy? Is it A, Rodney Dangerfield, B, Sam Kinison, Robin Williams is C, or D, Jack Benny? Again, I'll ask that question. Uh, which famous comedian was a priest before he took up comedy? Rodney Dangerfield, Sam Kinison, Robin Williams, or Jack Benny? If you think you already know the answer, uh, congratulations, you're a nerd like me. And if you don't, well, we're going to answer it later on in this episode, and I think it's a really surprising and interesting story. But first, let me tell you why this subject is very near and dear to my heart. Now, uh, the first comedian I ever saw live was not a dirty comic uh, or even a clean comedian. In fact, the very first comedian I ever saw was a Christian comedian by the name of Bob Smiley. Now, I grew up mainly with comedy in my household, but it really wasn't dirty comedy, and there wasn't really any reason for it. In fact, I'm still not sure why my parents only tend to listen to clean comedians. I think it was just their preference. But I remember growing up and listening and watching Bill Cosby's comedy special himself on a regular uh, basis. My mother uh, would rent it, and her and I would watch it, and we would laugh all the time about his dentist bit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I remember clean comedy was a was a, a main importance for me, but it really wasn't until my first stand-up comedy appearance that um, I had ever even heard of dirty comedy. I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought comedy was just comedy. Um, but what had really um, taught me about dirty comedy was my very first show at a comedy club at the age of 18. Now, when I went... Uh, to the age of 18 and um, went to a comedy club. I did my set. I got a couple of laughs and I thought, wow, okay, this is a really good and, and interesting uh, environment. And I, I liked it. But as I was talking to a comedian about comedy, he had asked me, you know, hey, who's your um, influence? Which is a question comedians tend to ask each other. Who's your influence? And so I, of course, said, you know, Ellen DeGeneres was a big influence of mine. Bill Cosby was a big influence. I said, how about yours? And he listed names I've never heard before. Richard Pryor, George Carlin, and the like. And so that night I said, well, who are these people? And I started to sit down. I remember my first summer ever getting in, uh, you know, as a comedian. I just sat down and watched all of the oldest um, stand-up comedy 
uh, tracks that I could possibly find and went to the library. And there was, uh, you know, a uh, hundred years of stand-up comedy, uh, which at the time I think it was less than a hundred years. So it was probably like 50 years of stand-up comedy is what it was called. And so it was just this collection of stand-up comedians. And I really started to find that there was a, a rich history of stand-up comedy, which we're going to talk about in this episode. But if you want to hear some of my favorite bits from the last 100 years of stand-up comedy, you can simply follow my Spotify playlist called Clean Comedy Greatest Bits. Um, And I'm constantly adding tracks to it. So if you happen to be on Spotify and you want to just hear some different things, of course, I go into, um, you know, who's on first and a couple of uh, Rodney Dangerfield bits, a lot of older stuff. And then as you get in, uh, a lot of my dry bar comedy friends uh, that I just absolutely love their bits, I put it in there. And so I'm constantly adding to it. Uh, feel free. It's called Clean Comedy Greatest Bits. And I would love, uh, if you do listen to it, to DM me on Instagram at Chris Swineland Comedy. Let me know if you liked it. And let me know what bits you like the most. Now, stand-up comedy is one of my favorite things. As you can tell, if you've heard any of these previous episodes, because I talk about my story a lot, and I've been doing stand-up comedy since I was 18, and uh, of course, as I was just saying, it wasn't until I went to the first comedy club and started to do the history on it that I started to realize how rich of a history it was, and there's some rather shocking things in in there as well, but it's important to know, before stand-up comedy existed, there was this medium that was called vaudeville. Now, this is where you get your Abbott and Costello who's on first or your Charlie Chaplin doing physical stunts in front of an audience. Um, This was vaudeville. Vaudeville was a theatrical genre of variety entertainment born in France at the end of the 19th century. Now, it was a variety show with singers, dancers, pies in the faces. Um, A judge would usually have a rubber mallet. So it it was um, (laughs) quite an interesting physical comedy type of venue. And it also became... Uh, quite uh, an interesting thing to go to. Now, one of the things that I want to mention is that uh, Abbott and Costello's bit, Who's on First, which you have most likely heard, uh, a lot of people tend to teach this, this was not their original bit. And that was kind of the lifestyle of vaudeville. Vaudeville would have an act that was really good, and so everybody would learn it and everybody would do it. Instead, nowadays in stand-up comedy, in the world of stand-up, which we'll get to in a little bit, stand-up comedy was very much, um, uh, and it has become very much a thing about uh, original material. You have to have an original joke. You can't take somebody else's. But in vaudeville, it wasn't that way at all. It was that you loved somebody else's bit, you'd learn it, and you would perfect it. So Abbott and Costello, half of their bits that you know of today did not come from them at all. It came from somebody else that had done it, but honestly, Abbott and Costello arguably were like the best vaudeville act that uh, most people had ever seen. And so they took Who's On First and made it their own, but it was not original, which is just an interesting thing. But the other very interesting thing to know about vaudeville is that it was apparently Christian, but only by appearance. The largest vaudeville theater uh, of that era who adapted the Christian brand was founded by a man by the name of B.F. Keith. Now, B.F. Keith was not a pleasant man. If you ever research him, uh, you'll find some interestingly dirty things that he would do just to make money. He did anything he could to make money. He would cut corners. Um, He would uh, not pay people as much as he promised them. He would do whatever he could. Now, Keith started his company in the mid-1800s and would continually do what I just said. He would continually cut cut costs to maximize profit, such as not uh, covering travel expenses, keeping the heat off in the theaters, and he would definitely have a very unkept dressing room as well. 
Now, during a time when the church was boycotting many vaudeville theaters, Keith's wife, who was deeply religious, recommended that her husband follow church directives. And Keith, he saw this opportunity to grow, so he formed a financial partnership with the church and quickly shifted his acts to follow strict rules on stage, such as not saying words like slob and son of a gun, and apparently holy G was a a very bad word for the time. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. Um, And so you were not allowed to say that on stage unless you wanted to never be able to perform for him again. Now, Keith really took to this idea of the Christian audience being his go-to audience. So he really took his side. And so did his business partner, Edward Franklin Albee, who becomes a well-known name in this business. Now, both of them really triumphed, believe it or not, through intimidation. If there was an independent theater that they wanted to take over, they publicly smeared it as a merchant of sin. And then its reputation would get tarnished. And then they would swoop in and uh, quote unquote, save the acquisition with a clean Keith Albee bill. So they really took to their own reputation and they would smear everybody else as saying that they were sinners. They worked together as partners, furthering their empire until Keith died in 1914, when his son took over the company until 1918. After this, Albie took ownership and eventually merged with the Orpheum Circuits in 1928, which was their only real competitor at that point. Even after the Keith Albee Orpheum uh, cooperation practically monopolized the vaudeville theater business, their Christian rules and ideas still ruled around the country. But history would prove them to be only Christian by name. There was shady business they were doing behind the scenes that entailed flooded dressing rooms, which I have no idea what that means, a real hook to pull uh, bad acts off of the stage. They would allow patrons to throw rotten tomatoes and bricks at the acts, which, by the way, is where you get this whole story or the, you know, the idea of throwing tomatoes at an act you don't like. They popularized it. They said, here you go, here's rotten fruit or, or rotten vegetables, throw it at people. And, um, and then they would also allow them to throw bricks. And so people got injured a lot. They gave low pay to performers, um, which would then lead many of them into uh, working in show business hell, uh, hotels where uh, they would become drug dealers. And um, some uh, would be around you know, uh, prostitutes. There was a lot of prostitution going around, drug dealing going around. As, as a result, many vaudeville comedians actually became addicted to opium and morphine so much so that the theater even had do not smoke opium in this room signs. So that just goes to show how how dreaded it was behind the scenes. There were even horrifying deaths that absolutely could have been avoided. Um, for instance, poor construction on a theater with the intent to cut costs actually led to the death of a comedian by the name of Rube Dickinson. Booked at a brand new venue, Dickinson stepped out to have a smoke and was standing underneath the large wooden marquee advertising him when it collapsed. As the marquee caved, so also did his head, um, which, you know, was killed under the weight of his own name. And that that is horrifying, but also kind of fitting for a comedian because most of us have huge egos. Um, And so I don't mean to bring too much light to it at all, but um, it is really unique and interesting how some of these people uh, found themselves uh, working at this theater and and when there was uh, stuff like this just to cut costs, 
it was rather deadly. And for better or for worse, bringing religious America to vaudeville led to the popularity of such entertainment and the very birth of stand-up comedy. And it is worth knowing, as I uh, was born in America, stand-up comedy was also created in America. So uh, vaudeville created, uh, or vaudeville was created in France. That's fine. I'll let them have it. But we created stand-up comedy. Uh, the first stand-up comedian was named Charlie Case. And this is how his stand-up happened. Now, Charlie Case, this is the legend, is that Charlie Case was a vaudeville act. He was doing the whole pie-in-the-face, um, rubber gavel situation, just kind of the basic stuff. And the legend goes that Charlie Case was tired of doing the old uh, vaudeville act. It was just the same thing, and he was bored with it. So the legend goes that he just walked up on stage instead of uh, having his outfit and his goofy setup. He just walked out on stage and started talking about life. And apparently the audience loved it, but they all looked at each other and they were like, what is this? And that's also what the, the comics thought in the back of the stage. And they were like, what is this guy doing? And why is it absolutely amazing? And that is the birth of stand-up comedy that we know it. Now, there are a couple other people that will try to take credit for it. By the way, Frank Fay um, has been on a couple uh, websites. As you Google, you're going to see Frank Fay pop up. But um, a lot of historians believe strongly that Frank Fay came after Charlie Case, that Frank Fay was uh, definitely one of the uh, stand-up comedians right after. But Charlie Case was the original guy, is the best that we can figure. Now, one fun thing to know about uh, Frank Fay, as I mentioned, he got in a huge fight with another comedian, um, and both of them fought over the idea of whether a stand-up joke should be original or borrowed by somebody else. There was actually a fist fight that had happened live in front of everybody. So it, again, just goes to show how early the arguments that we're still facing as stand-up comedians um, started at the very beginning. The idea of stand-up being original was an argument right when it was created. But there's also a couple of other interesting facts to know about the birth of stand-up comedy. Now, one interesting fact to know about Charlie Case himself is that he was black, but in order to allow himself more popularity and even to be allowed on stage at the time, he had to do this thing called blackface. And uh, that was actually a trend in vaudeville, which was interesting. And um, historians have no idea why. They, there was no um, reason for the joke or, or for, for the idea of it being done. But a lot of white comics would get up and they would be blackface. And uh, he was a black comic. So in order to get away with being up on stage because he was not allowed up on stage at the time, he would go blackface. And so um, it was. there was a lot of debate for the longest time as to who Charlie Case was. And so um, it was kind of the, the way that he would get up on stage in the first place. Now, the other peculiar fact about Charlie Case is that not only did he give birth to stand-up comedy, but he may also have started the generational curse in stand-up comedians committing suicide. On November 26, 1916, Charlie Case was found dead at the Palace Hotel in New York City, lying next to a gun, a bottle of oil, and a cleaning cloth. The police believed the cleaning cloth to be evidence that he had accidentally killed himself while cleaning his gun. However, it is widely believed that Case killed himself due to reports of his depression. Now, if that belief is true, then perhaps it was the start of generational curses, if you will, in stand-up comedy, mainly suicide. Uh, 
Now, I, I remember the day Robin Williams died. Personally, I, I remember this. I was at a part-time job as a waiter, but everybody knew that I was a comedian. They had asked me if I was okay. And uh, one waitress in particular who was very sweet, she had walked up and I, I was devastated by this news of Robin Williams, as many people were, and a little shocked, a little surprised. And this waitress came up and she said, you know, I, I hear that comedians are very depressed. And I said, oh, yeah, I, I guess that's true. And then she put her, her hand on my shoulder and looked me dead in the eyes. And she said, are you depressed? And I, I said, no, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm one of the few here, I guess, that, that isn't depressed. But I, I, I remember people were asking me for like a month. Everybody would just to make sure that I was okay because uh, the idea that comedians are depressed is pretty popularly well-known. And a lot of it is because of the history of it. And, you know, Robin Williams is just the tip of the iceberg there. Comedian Freddie Prince, who uh, became very, very famous uh, after performing on uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then he got his own uh, sitcom. Freddie Prince uh, ended up shooting himself. And the the weird thing about his story, if you ever look it up, is that supposedly he would prank his secretary many times with a fake gun and fake blood. He would make the sound of a gunshot in his office. The secretary would come in, and he it would appear like he had shot himself. And he would constantly um, harass his secretary, as he called it, pranking. But then one day he really did it and, um, you know, he, he really killed himself. And, um, you know, there's just one of many stories in the book. I'm dying up here written by William Noodle Cedar. It documented the golden era of stand-up comedy, which included famed comics like Robin Williams, Jay Leno and Richard Lewis, who went on to uh, strike from the comedy store demanding payment for their time on stage. It's a really unique book. One of my favorites. If you get a chance, definitely pick it up. But in the book, it told the story of a lesser-known comedian by the name of Steve Lubkin, who was close friends with, with Richard Lewis. Now, Steve Lubkin was among the comedians who went on strike for not being paid by the comedy store in 1979, and he in particular felt Mitzi Shore had treated him badly after everyone went back to work. He complained to the other comedians that he wasn't giving him any time to perform uh, prior to the strike, he had been booked on The Tonight Show, but his slot was canceled after a show producer didn't like Lubkin's set at the Comedy Store. Lubkin's appearance at the Comedy Store in La Jolla was also canceled after he showed up late. Thinking himself a failure, he jumped from the roof of the Continental Hyatt house and fell 14 stories to his death, landing in the Comedy Store parking lot next door. Lubkin left a note reading, My name is Steve Lubkin. I used to work at the Comedy Store. Blaming, uh, the, blaming Mitzi Shore, his girlfriend left a promotional poster of Lupkin in her office and wrote, got the message on her wall with a marker. After the devastating suicide, Lupkin's family set up an organization to help comedians with mental health. Now, stand-up comedy at, at its height at that time was dark and depressing and desperately in need of a pastor, which is exactly what they got. However, he wasn't one who represented the truth or the gospel. Sadly, he was someone who left the church in bitterness. He became a very famous comedian in the 1980s by the name of Sam Kennison. Well, like I said, I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to just do whatever I can for people. Like the world hunger thing, the USA for Africa. That's, isn't that great? You guys hear the song? Nice song, isn't it? Beautiful. Before he was famous for his screaming stand-up rants, he was a Pentecostal preacher 
who followed after his father's religious footsteps from the age of 17 to 24. This was Sam Kinison. And uh, if you had guessed earlier, that is the answer to the pop quiz, by the way, is that Sam Kinison was a- an actual priest before stand-up comedy uh, made him famous. Now, Kinison attended Pinecrest Bible Training Center for a year prior to his pastoral career. After his uh, first wife divorced him, he almost immediately decided to start doing stand-up comedy. Sam Kinison is quoted as saying, I got divorced, which was not a good thing for a revivalist minister. Uh, It did not go down well. So he decided to try stand-up. And his words are, I'd already been banned from a couple churches for my jokes. So one day I woke up and decided it was time to start living for myself. He coined a very unique style of comedy, backed with an iconic scream resembling that of his fire and brimstone Pentecostal preaching background. But I'm not trying to make fun of world hunger. Matter of fact, I think I have the answer because I spent a lot of time working it out. And uh, if you want to stop world hunger, stop sending them food. Don't send these people another bite, folks. You want to send them something? You want to help? Send them U-Hauls. Send them U-Hauls, some luggage, and send them a guy out there that goes, hey, you know, we've been driving out here every day with your food for like the last, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And we were driving out here a day across the desert, and it occurred to us there wouldn't be world hunger if you people would live where the food is! This is sand. Yeah. It's sand. You know it's going to be 100 years from now, huh? It's going to be sand! Get your kids, get your shit. We'll make one trip. We'll take you to where the food is. We have deserts in America. We just don't live in them. In 1980, Kinnison moved to L.A. in the hope of finding work at the comedy store. Once there... He started living like an aspiring rock star and developed a habit for cocaine, learning to freebase almost immediately. He had a uh, huge appetite and could consume up to five or six grams a night, um, which seems absolutely insane. Uh, I don't know any of that uh, you know, language. I don't know how many grams that is, like how much that really is a lot, but it seems to me like that's a lot. His big break came on HBO's special called Rodney Dangerfield's Ninth Annual Young Comedian Special in August 1985. He then went on TV on Late Night with David Letterman that same year. David Letterman actually introduced him by saying, brace yourselves, I'm not kidding, due to his very crude and dirty form of comedy. Okay, well, uh, we're in for something now, folks. My next guest is making his network television debut tonight, and we believe it's long overdue. He is one of the strangest and most original comedians working today. Brace yourselves, I'm not kidding. Please welcome Sam Kinison. I know a lot of you come here, you watch TV, you wait every night for somebody to come on here and give you an answer for your lives, waiting for someone that'll come and say, hey, this is it. I don't have to settle for defeat anymore. I can rise up out of my routine. I can get a hold of myself. I don't have to lose. I can win. There's something inside me that's not going to let me go down anymore. But I'm not the guy. Sam Kinison's comedy was unique in that he would often take a turn towards satirical and sacrilegious shots of the Bible, Christianity, and many evangelists as well. 
Mixed with his drug addiction, Sam was headed personally towards a downward spiral that would certainly erupt. Sam Kinnison's story, which I'm about to tell, is one of the saddest stories to me because of my heart for comedians. When I first learned of how his life ends, I I was grieved because of his heart against the church and his untimely death, which would include a, a very mysterious conversation with the Lord as well. Although he grew to sold-out appearances, Sam began to self-destruct due to his manic drug abuse. It actually got so bad that in 1990, he would have to have oxygen tanks backstage to help him stay alive. That is crazy to me. Um, There was some light at the end of the tunnel, however. Kinnison's drug addiction saw an end when he got sober in 1991. So in 1991, the drug addiction was over. He found himself sober. And also, he married his third wife, Malika Sori, on April 4th of 1992. They then proceeded to go on a five-day Hawaiian honeymoon. Sam Kinison's life seemed to be taking a turn for the better. Until April 10th, 1992, just six days after he got married, Sam was struck and killed in a car accident. With his sobriety, Sam was getting calls from studios again, and he was beginning a very successful comeback tour of stand-up comedy. Kinnison and his wife, in fact, were on their way to Laughlin, Nevada to perform at a sold-out show. Only a small distance away from the venue, he was driving his Pontiac Trans Am when it was struck head-on over in uh, U.S. uh, Route 95 by a pickup truck driven by 17-year-old Troy Pearson, who had been drinking alcohol while driving. Pearson had sped onto oncoming traffic, heading dangerously towards the comedian. Although Sam tried to slow his car down, the collision was unavoidable, and Sam Kinnison, not having a seatbelt, had smashed the windshield with his body. His brother Bill Kinnison and his good friend Carl LeBove were following behind him and saw the wreck. They proceeded to get out of their van and check on Sam. Now, there's been conflicting stories about what happens after the crash. Some say that Sam Kinison was found dead immediately, but another story brings a spiritual side to the ending, and supposedly this story comes from his friend Carl LeBove. Now, uh, Carl LeBove says that he had ran up uh, on the scene and he had saw Sam Kinison lying on the ground. LeBove watched as Sam had a final conversation of his life with God. Sam Kinison supposedly said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Why? Okay. 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 And that was it. This has always been a difficult story for me to hear because of my heart for the spiritual well-being of a comedian. Comedians and entertainers are my mission field. Now, I've been doing stand-up comedy since I was 18, and one of the struggles that I had learned when, uh, because I was also a Christian, was going to clubs and seeing people's heart against God. They would be these comedians and offstage, especially when I started to feature and headline at clubs, these comics would really open up to me a lot more. And um, one of the things that I I remember where I said something needs to be done was I was at a comedy club uh, featuring that weekend. So I hung out with the comics every night and Um, They had no relationship with the Lord. There were two of them, no relationship with the Lord. And I talked to them all weekend about my story with with Jesus and my testimony and, and, uh, you know, who uh, the gospel, who who Jesus really is and what the gospel really is. And I had the conversation. And then at the end, I didn't know what resources to give them except for the Bible. 
and they didn't really have anything. They were getting back on the road. They had so many other shows to do. This was just one uh, stop uh, along the way to where they were heading. And I, that's when I came up with this idea to write a book that preaches the gospel to comedians. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, and now I have partnered with a couple of other comedy clubs, wherein what I do is when the, the comedian comes on their opening night uh, or their first night, um, they get a gift bag and that includes uh, this book uh, that preaches the gospel to them. That And then it also has my card and it says, call me anytime, uh, you know, day or night, uh, I, I will be your pastor. And so th- this idea to me of seeing a comedian that is just living a fast life and going through a life without having anybody reaching out to them for the sake of Christ, uh, for their own souls, um, is heartbreaking. And that's why I do what I do. If you would like to help support the cause, uh, you can visit my website at chriswineland.com and follow the links for the great heckle. Just when you thought comedy in the 80s was only anti-Christian, there arose a superstar comedian who shared the gospel everywhere he went. This man's outright Christian humor took the church by storm, and he quickly became the number one Christian comedian of all time, selling out stadiums, records, and being featured on mainstream outlets like Oprah and other uh, major television shows. He flew out in a private jet. He shared his testimony about this being a demonic leader in an occult to a Jesus-loving hippie was his transformation. He talked about this transformation quite a bit. The comedian's name was Mike Warnke. And the reason his name and story have been wiped from history is because his testimony that he shared about his life as a warlock never happened. He lied about everything and he wasn't caught until later. I'm going to share the shocking story of Mike Warnke and the rise and fall of his Christian fame in the next episode of Forgotten Hollywood. And believe me, you are in for a mind-blowing episode.